Uh, so good to see all of you today, and um, this month is flying by, and I hope that you are doing well. Um, we get to this story, and I appreciate this story, and we're going to be looking at chunks of the whole chapter in Genesis 27, but it's a story of a messy, dysfunctional family. And um, in one sense, I appreciate this story, that the Bible includes all of the mess and all of the mistakes and sinners, because it's not trying to portray sometimes a fake, uh, whitewashed, perfect picture of what the people of God were like. It was a mess. It was um, a lot of a lot of different things going on. You look at the story that we might uh, be familiar with. It's the passing of the blessing that started with the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then it was going to go down and through the patriarchs, and it is now from going from uh, Isaac and is supposed to go to Jacob. Jacob has a twin brother who's a little bit older, who was born first, Esau. And then you see this whole mess here in their family dynamics because uh, Esau is a little bit older. He's considered culturally the one who's supposed to receive the blessing. Um, he, the father favors him. The mother favors Jacob. There is lying and deception and eventually even a threat of murder at the end. And so you see this and you say, the Bible is not something that is written just to make it look like our lives are perfect. Sometimes we try to uh, promote and show that our lives are perfect, but it isn't. And it's in the mess, and it is in the dysfunctions oftentimes, even in our own families, in our own worlds, it's in the mess there that God is still working. And so on a big picture, we see that God is still moving, even though it looks like things are out of control. And people are trying to take control, yet God is ultimately in control. You know, when you look at the... Um, around the frigid waters of Greenland in certain seasons, the icebergs will move and they will float around. And one certain thing that happens that's interesting is sometimes in the same body of water next to each other, uh, different pieces of ice will move in opposite directions. And that happens because the bigger pieces of ice with the bottom part that, we, that is submerged in the water that we cannot see, it is the current that guides it. On the top, it looks like there's other ice that moves, but it is the smaller pieces of ice that the wind blows. It almost is like a sail, and it, it is blowing the other way. And so from the surface, it looks like it is chaotic, and it is this ice is going everywhere, but from below, we know it is the current ultimately controlling where everything goes. And this is what we see here. We see a family that's so dysfunctional. And so from a surface level, it looks like everyone is doing their own thing. Everyone has their own agenda. And these are not the perfect, ideal uh, people or the, the patriarchs that we sometimes think that they ought to be. That they ought to be holy and perfect and reverent and sinless. And yet even in their family, we see all of these things happening. What we want to do today is look at this dysfunctional family here. We're going to look at the four main characters, the father, uh, the, the wife or the mother, and then the two, two brothers, and how they were all a mess in the midst of that, and yet God is still sovereign. And then at the end, I want to take us to really to our own worlds, to our own families. 
As I was preparing for this and thinking about family and the dysfunctions of how family is, I was thinking for us that even in our own family life, as we go back and we look back to when we were age 7 or 10, and we might have some painful memories, we might have some good memories. Some of us might have had some wonderful homes, and quite a few others had some very difficult times. And somehow, in the middle of that, God wants to redeem that. So we're going to take it home to our own families at the end. But first, let's look at this family. We see, first of all, Isaac, and we see Isaac's blindness, right? Isaac's blindness. In the passage that we read in the first few verses, it tells us here in verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim, so he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So this is his wish for the last meal. He's saying, before I die, I want to have one last meal. And he calls now his older of the two, Esau, and he says, go out and catch something. Go catch, uh, 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 whether it's you know deer or some wild animal, and make my favorite food and bring it to me. We, it's remind, it tells us here in the very first verse that his eyes were dim. It was his blindness. So later on, he cannot tell Jacob from Esau, and uh, he, he does not know what is, uh, who is who. His physical blindness was a weakness, but his spiritual blindness was the greater handicap for him. You see here, though he couldn't see that well, his heart, his spiritual eyes were blinded. The writer of Ephesians, Paul tells us to, you know, we sing that song, open the eyes of my heart so I may see you. And at the same time here, his physical eyes and his spiritual eyes were both blinded. He could not see what God wanted. And what is most important is that we see what God wants first. It's interesting because when you go back a few chapters, Genesis 25, at the birth of the twins, God had pronounced to Rebekah who is going to be who. And he's saying, he says in verse 23, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within shall be divided. The younger shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This was contrary to culture. This was not the custom of the day. It was always the oldest that received the, the greater inheritance, that, carried, that received the blessing from the father, so he carried on the family lineage. And yet, it was God's will that the younger would be stronger, that the older would serve the younger. You see here, it is in Isaac's blindness that he simply goes along with the culture of the day. And we as the people of God are not called to just conform to the culture of the day, the customs of the people that we live around. And we often catch ourselves saying things, well, everyone's doing it. Oh, don't be so old-fashioned. This is how it is. The world is changing. We, as the people of God, are to be countercultural. Our lives ought to be so different than our non-Christian family, non-Christian friends. It ought to be something different. 
People ought to think, there's something odd. Why, why would you do that? Why do you use your time? Why do you give so much? Why do you serve so much? Why would you forgive someone that is unforgivable? So you see, we are called to be counterculture. Here is Isaac who is blind to God's wishes. He does the custom, lives out the custom of the day, and he now does not see what God wants him to do. He is the head of the household. He is the patriarch. He is the father. He is supposed to set the tone, and he messes it up. And when leadership messes things up, it trickles down, and we see his wife now. You see here Rebecca's manipulation. This is her mistake. This is her manipulation. We see this oftentimes, and you might have someone in your family or when you have Thanksgiving and all the extended cousins come and the uncles come, and I'm pretty sure there are some uh, weird people that everyone knows that they're weird, except they don't know that they're weird, right? And, and you gather and you know, oh, that's the, uh, the funny uncle. Or that's the... But in that group, a lot of times you kind of can see someone manipulating the situation. Always somehow they get to get out of the hard work or they get to pass along the responsibilities or they take credit for something they haven't done. And you kind of, as you see, as life has gone, you say, I could see this manipulation happening. This is what Rebecca does. As Isaac is speaking to Esau, it tells us in verse 5, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. And she repeats to him and she devises a plan. She says, I'm going to go and cook. I'm going to take a couple of the baby goats. Um, I'm going to make a delicious meal. You're going to go in there. I'm going to have you wear your brother's clothing. Esau, your brother has a lot more body hair, the Bible tells us. Jacob had no body hair, right? And he says, so we're going to take some of the, the hair from the animals and put it on in case he wants to touch it. And you're going to go and smell like him. You're going to feel like him. And you're going to receive this blessing. And here is the mother. Here is the one who is supposed to be the partner, who is supposed to now be honest, faithful, and she is now manipulating the situation so that she gets what she wants. She had a favorite. This is painful. I don't know if you and your family, if you've ever had seen it, where there are favorites. And it is painful. Oh, well, he's the oldest, so he's the favorite. Oh, well, no, she's the youngest, so she's the favorite. Oh, he's the only son. He, he's the favorite. Oh, she's the princess. She's the favorite. Oh, he, you know, one of my friends was saying they have two kids and one looks like the mom and one looks like the dad. And when they go to each other's grandparents, he says, they all favor the one that looks like their side of the family, right? And he said, it's so obvious. Now his kids who are, uh, you know, uh, young adults, they know too, right? And they say, oh, gosh, you know, all right, we're going to go to mom's side of the family, and we know who the favorite is. We're going to go to dad's side of the family, we know who the favorite is. And we see this favoritism happening here. And this is painful for us, you know, because as the children of God, as God is our heavenly father, we are all called, not by our merits. 
It is heartbreaking when children are favored because of their merits, because of their talents, because of what they've accomplished. And we often think that in the economy of God, that it is he who brings the most and has most to show to God, that God would say, oh, she, he's my favorite. He sang up on church. He plays the instruments. In God's eyes, we are all sinners that have been given his grace. We see here where Rebecca now gives, does not yield to God, but takes control. Uh, she is playing God. I'm going to make things happen. This is uh, one, of, one professor, Bebo Elkin, has a term. He calls it the Arminian withdrawal. It's basically saying, uh, opposite of Calvinism, right? The sovereignty of God. It's saying, I'm taking control. God is not in control, so I will take control. It is to say, Lord, you just let me handle this. I'll take control. The will that she ought to do was to let... God reigned, and she wanted to rule herself. God is in control, the greatest of events to the most minute of things on earth. All the events of our lives, every single thing is under, under his control. You know, in the 13th century, when Genghis Khan ruled and the uh, Mongol Empire was established, it was the largest empire in the history of the world. Uh, Modern-day Mongolia, China, Russia, much of Central Asia, Eastern Europe were all under his rule. It covered 12 million square miles. 25% of the population was now ruled in this way by the Mongol Empire. But in present day, it is less than, someone has suggested, it is less than 8% of its original size when you look at Mongolia today. And this all happened because of one little insect. It was a flea. A flea had traveled on a rat, transmitted what was known as the bubonic plague. And then it spread throughout the land. There was already uh, some uh, hardships within, and as people started dying and the po political power was lost and the empire collapsed. You see, it was a flea. It was on a rat, and it spread this. And the most powerful, the largest of kingdoms, had vanished. We might think these minute things, God is not under, it's not under God's control, but when you look at the history of man, God is in full control. God is sovereign. There is not even one molecule outside of his will. It is the atheist that says, I want to be God, that I'm in control. And this is the role that Rebecca, we see here, is taking. I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to make sure the right thing happens. The confrontation could have been honest. It could have been straightforward. But she deceives to try to get her way. We see, thirdly, Esau, Esau's rash desires. He was a, a short-tempered man. He was someone who lived by his desires, by his appetite. If he wanted it, he lived it out. If he had the appetite for it, he was hungry. He wanted. You see, in Genesis 25, there's a story when he comes back from the field and his brother is cooking a stew. Jacob is cooking. It says in verse 20, 
9 of Genesis 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which meant red, right? Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. It's interesting, I think Jacob knew the tendency of his brother. Esau said, and I love the exaggeration here, and we all know friends, or we might have someone in our family like this. He says this, Esau said, I am about to die. I am starving to death, right? If you grew up with brothers, uh, probably one of them were like that, or if not all of them. I am starving to death. I'm going to die if I don't eat that stew. All he thought about was the stew. I don't know what kind of stew it was. Like, I like shabu-shabu, right? Uh, and Carissa likes, you know, she likes hot pot. So I'm like, oh, which one's better? I go, oh, man, you know, we talk about that. We have important family discussions over hot pot and stuff like that. Can you imagine? Right? It was a hot pot, right? That was a favorite soup. And it's, the, it's just like the perfect marbled meat, and he's putting it in with his, you know, chopsticks or whatever. He's putting it in, right? And he's putting in, he's putting in. I love just meat. I could just eat meat and bok choy, and that's it, right? And just bok choy and that. Meat is for the flavor. Bok choy is for the guilt, right? And you put it together, and you eat it. Oh, and he's eating, and the brother is starving. He's been out all day, and he says, I'm going to die. But this sounds so familiar because when we go back to now his father, who says at the end, go bring me my favorite meal because I might die soon. It's the same thing. It is a learned behavior from his father. And here we see Esau is a man that lived by his appetite. He is controlled by the things that his flesh desired. And that is now today in our culture what everyone lives by. This is what I felt like. This is my truth. This is what I, I wanted to do. If I wanted to live this way and I felt this way, that is all that matters. We are called by God to be self-controlled, to not be led by the flesh, but by the Spirit of God. Not to walk according to our appetites and go and say, I'm going to die if I don't eat this. We see later on also in his temper, Esau, in the end of verse uh, chapter 27, verse 41, he basically says at the end when he finds out, he says, I will kill my brother, Jacob. Here is the guy who is rash, who is short-tempered, who lives by how he feels. It's all about his gut feeling. And now he's mad, so he says, I'm going to kill my own brother over this. So you see him swing so quickly. It is in Proverbs 25, verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This is who he was. And so we see that dysfunction there. And then we go to Jacob and we see Jacob's complicity. He goes along with it. He's the youngest in the family, and he does 
And maybe he is the mama's boy and whatever mom says he's going to do, even though now he is a grown-up. And he ought to make his own decisions. He goes along and he complicits to his mother's wishes. And when he goes now, with the disguise, with the clothes, with the fur, with the goat uh, food, and he goes in to receive this to his blind father, to receive this blessing. The father asks over and over in verse 18 of our text, Who are you, my son? Verse 19, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. You see him now. He's now starting to lie to his own father. He's stealing from his own father. Verse 20, but Esau said to his son, uh, Isaac said to his own son, verse 20, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son, taking up the food? And now he invokes God. He says, because the Lord your God granted me success. And he goes and he touches him and he does this. And he asks him in verse 24 again, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And he eats of the food and he blesses him. So not only does he comply with his own mother's wishes, now he himself is in the act of deceiving. He himself is even calling upon God, saying, yeah, God is giving me this. And he sins against God to do these things. And so we see here a picture of a mess. What a messy family. This is where the blessing, the covenant that was made through Abraham was going to be passed down. It was going to be passed down through the patriarchs all the way to David. And eventually the son of David, Jesus Christ, was going to be born. And this was the hope of Israel. And you see this mess. And I wonder if Satan is looking at that kind of giggling and laughing. Because you see the, the breached walls of this family unit and he is sending in. And he knows all of their weaknesses. Their greed uh, their appetites, their manipulation, and he is sending in all the temptations, and they're falling for it. And we might look at this as, God, are you really in control? How would you have your people act like this? Because you would think it would be much more dignified. It would be a place of honesty. It would be a place of reverence where he lays his hand on his son, and they're looking to God. God is completely ignored, and they are trying to figure out life on their own. And yet God is in control. Now let's bring this home a little bit. Maybe you re read this, or maybe you've, you heard what I shared a little bit, and you start identifying to some of this. You go, oh, yeah, that, that was how my parents were. Oh, that's how I was treated. Maybe you've experienced trauma in your family life growing up. There's Dan Allender who speaks about trauma in our lives, and he says it creates the potential for a loss of joy, a loss of ability to receive and give, that is to love. And maybe it has affected us today. Because all that we've seen, the favoritism and the backstabbing, and maybe as a child we've received this, 
was a victim to this, and now he's like, I don't know, I, 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 I protect myself against all of this. I'm reluctant to open up to anyone. I've lost the ability to receive and to give. Well, the gospel comes in here. Now, the gospel is the good news. And the gospel is not just for going to heaven, a ticket to heaven, but it's redemption here. There is a word here, goel. Goel is a word in the Hebrew. It means redeemer. Redeemer is, goel is the person who looks after the best interests of the whole family. The kinsman redeemer that we've read about. The redeemer that we will see that Job talks about. Looks at the best interests of the whole family, manages all of the resources, makes sure everyone is taken care of, takes charge, and is now the one that is going to guide the family in the right way, the head of the household. We see here Isaac's failure led to now the whole family scrambling. And yet in Christ, the one who's redeemed us, he is our redeemer. He is our goel. He is the one who now takes the place and says to us, I am your father. I am your redeemer. I looked after you. And he now takes care of us in this way. I say this often to new um, expecting uh, parents. I say this especially to the men. And I pull them aside and I say, oh, you know, are you ready to be a dad and the responsibilities of that? And one of the things I always kind of throw in there, and I, I say, you know, I said, a lot of the people I talk to, their pain from the, their parents, most have come from their dad. And I was like, don't mess it up, right? Um, and now the dads are like, geez. Kid's not even born. I'm, you know, I'm like, what am I supposed to say? Don't mess it up. Uh, a scowl from a mom is taken a little different than a scowl from a dad. Uh, words sometimes from the mom it can be harsh, but they heal. They seem to heal faster than harsh criticism from the dad. It is oftentimes that these movies are made looking for the approval of their father. It is grown men that die wanting to hear those words, Dad, are you proud of me? And it is a lot of times, um, a lot of people I know, even a lot on our pastoral staff that share, and they've shared on the pulpit over the years about the pain that they have received in the trauma that they've received at home. The father figure that had made mistakes, that did not rule well, did not care correctly. And yet, it is the gospel that renews. And so this cycle of whatever sin there was can be broken when the new Goel, the new Redeemer, comes. Jesus Christ. He takes the role. And he says, I will give you a new life, a new chapter. He is our Redeemer. In Isaiah 58, verse 12. It says, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called a repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is a picture of what the Redeemer does for us. 
the things that have been broken through many generations, you will now be able to be the repairer of the breach. Again, the family of Isaac, their walls, their wall was breached and Satan is coming in and attacking and trying to thwart the will of God. And he says, you can breach that, you can block that. Right? You can go and block that area. And not only that, it says, you're the restorer of streets to dwell in. They'll bring restoration. You know, one of the things I love to watch often is old things that get restored. Um, and, you know, you catch yourself on YouTube. And, it just, and there was one where I think they're selling car soap, right? But they're washing old cars. And they take old cars and the tires are flat and there's cobweb and rust and junk everywhere. And they take it on the toe and they take it out and they wash the car. And there's an odd satisfaction to seeing that. They take a toothbrush and they get all the grime out. They take the rugs out and they, you know, power wash it over and over and all the dirt is coming out and they repaint it and they polish it. They buy new parts of the parts that are gone and rusted and they make it and at the end you're waiting. And there's always before the new reveal, right, there's the commercial or the ad and you're like, oh, come on, come on. And you see it. And then they bring some vulnerable older person, the grandpa, look at your car when you were 16, and they're crying, you know, and, and they show them the car, and they do this with homes and art and so on, to restore something to its original purpose, to make it new again, and this is what Christ does for us, and so I wanted to encourage us today, I wanted you to know that there is hope, that whatever you lived under, and if you had a perfect, blessed, loving life, man, praise God. Continue those things. If you have past pain and hurt and things you know now as an adult, that, that is, was not just. Have the hope to know it does not have to repeat in the next generation. You are the restorer. You are the repairer. You have a new Goel. You have Jesus Christ who starts a new life and the way that it ought to be and we start a new life in this world. So we look here. And though things may look chaotic. And though we get tempted to play God. And we want to manipulate the situation. We want to control the situation. We get caught up by our appetites. And we see all of ourselves in the story of these four. And know that there is a greater Isaac. Jesus Christ. Who now says, I will make it. New. Trust in me, my will shall be done. And we trust. Don't live a life where you are scrambling around, living in this kind of drama. Pause, put your eyes on God, and say, I will trust you, God. I will do as you say. I don't care what the world around me says or does. I will put my trust in you. You are sovereign. He is in control of your life, He is in control of our lives. And we now trust in him. Let's pray together. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your sovereign hand in our lives. We see the story of broken people, dysfunctional in their relationships, ignoring you as, whereas they ought to be acknowledging you, running and scrambling to get things done. 
in all of this, God. And Lord, we, we pause and we look to you. So Lord, we do not need to manipulate any situation. We do not need to run after what the world is doing around us, God. We, we shore up, we repair the breach. We restore, Lord God, the streets in your name. Jesus Christ, you are the head. You are the one that does this for us. So God, we now trust in you. So we trust completely in your sovereign hand. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.